Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Good to see each and every one of you here today, and I want to welcome those who are joining us online. I was reminded of that again this week, past somebody in Kroger, and they said, we've been watching online, and uh, so that is uh, just a reminder. We're glad. Time changed Sunday, and I just a little behind the scenes, Ethan and Kat, three little kids, they were here early worshiping, uh, just amazing. Praise God for them and all who uh, made it here this morning. Time change is always a tough one, all right? The spring forward, it, it can be a little challenging, but we're all right. We survived. We're good, all right? Beautiful day outside. Today, we're going to talk about love. And maybe you've been thinking in the past couple weeks as Jesus has been going through these various sections, this is heavy, He's been dealing with a lot as he's confronted the religious leaders with how messed up they were in the name of religion, and they were confusing people, and they were perverting God's law. So he dealt with anger, lust, divorce, being truthful, revenge, and finally today we come to the section where Jesus deals with love. This is a radical kind of love, and so you might be saying, finally, this is going to be a great message. This is going to be like soft, and we're just going to tiptoe through the tulips. This will be amazing. We can talk about love. That's what the world needs more of, love, love, love. Let me tell you, fasten your seatbelts. Jesus is not done with us yet, all right? In this message, the love that Jesus described here is upside down. It's transformative. It is radical. This is the kind of life that Jesus has called us to through the cross, his burial, and resurrection. So if you have your worship guide there, they're on our homepage every week at the bottom of that homepage, or they're here in uh, this place. You can pick one up and follow along. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 is where we're going to begin. Matthew 5, verse 43. Jesus says, this is the sixth time he said this now. You have heard that it was said. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your Father in heaven, your heavenly Father, is perfect. Now, verse 48 will be next Sunday's sermon. We're just going through verse 47 today, and this is what I'm going to demonstrate from this text, the punch, the big idea, the thesis of the message, 
is that Jesus' love is so radical that his followers can never blend in as normal. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are not meant to be one of the pack, one of the many, just like everybody else. You are meant, you were born again to be different. So what is Jesus teaching his followers here on the Sermon on the Mount? Number one, there's a selfish love, but this love is deficient. Okay, this is the kind of love that the, the religious people, the scribes, the Pharisees, all of those leaders, what they were purporting, what they were teaching, what they believed the Bible taught. Selfish love. But Jesus confronted them. He confronted this self-serving love that came in the form of religion. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They would have all said, oh, we've heard that. Yeah, we've heard that a lot. They would have looked over at the scribes, Pharisees, you guys have taught us this. We know this one. And now Jesus comes to the sixth aspect that he's dealing with, a false teaching from the scribes and the Pharisees of his day. Now, what did God's law actually teach? God's law taught this in the Old Testament, love your neighbor. That much they had correct. But they left off two very important words as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. How much am I supposed to love my neighbor? How well do you love yourself? How well do you take care of you? What will you do to keep you safe, loved, protected, well? That's a high standard. And they dropped that one off in their saying. Now, this law was meant to restrain hatred, not to do what they were doing, and that's command it. We'll see that in a few moments. The command was to love neighbors. And it was clearly taught in the Old Testament. And we've been spending some time where Jesus was giving these expositional messages out of Leviticus, for instance, 19. Verse 17, this is what God's law commands. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. It sounds very similar to Matthew 18, that if you have an issue with somebody, don't just sit there and stew on it. If it seriously is an issue that you just can't let go, then go talk to them. And Jesus repeats that in Matthew 18, but verse 18 of Leviticus 19, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. What happens when you don't work out conflict? We just get more and more upset, more and more frustrated. We keep adding on, well, if she really, you know, my wife knows it, and, and we just keep piling it on. And they don't even have a clue anything's going on. And we have this war going on inside of our heart of, how dare they, I thought they loved me, and all of this is mounting, where if we could just be open and authentic and kind and say, hey, you know, did you know that your chair is on my foot right now? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Oh, I thought you were doing that because you hated me because I didn't, you know. Whatever it might be, go and work it out when we don't. And that temperature just boils and it just gets more and more frustrated. And we're just taking it up like that, that you know, the steaming pot. 
You shall not take, verse 18, vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor, here it is, as yourself. Why? Who sent this message to us? I am the Lord. Oh, better pay attention to that one. The context of this command. All right, so they're teaching, love your enemies or love your neighbor, hate your enemies. That was their teaching. Jesus is correcting this. The context. This is why we study the whole Bible and not just our favorite sections. This is why I don't just, you know, preach my favorite five verses over and over again. I don't sit in my office and like, hmm, who was there last Sunday? What do, you, what do I think they might be going through? Yeah, they need a message on, here's what it is, and then show up and then that person doesn't even come to church and I've just prepared a whole message. Topical preaching. No, we just go through the Bible. Leviticus 19 in verse 9. You hear the heart of God in this. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So someone later on in Ruth, and Ruth would come back from Moab with Naomi, her mother-in-law, and she would say, I will go out and I will go into the fields. This is God's welfare program. And she asked permission and Naomi said, sure, go out. And she went out and she picked up these items and Boaz said, who is that woman in my field? Ah, she's actually a distant, coming back with a distant relative of yours, Naomi. And he went to her, said, don't go to anybody else's field. I'll protect you. Then he goes to all of his guys and says, guys, forget leaving the edges. Drop half your bucket in front of her. I want her to come back to my field. And the story worked out pretty well. It's all connected here. And she was a Moabitess brought into the line of Christ. Verse 10, you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. Uh, who says? I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 19.33, when a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The Lord dealing with his people, setting up a provision to love your neighbor. And don't forget that rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the good Samaritan. Man's tradition turned this completely upside down. The teaching of the religious leaders of Jesus' day by the time he walked the earth was this, hate your enemy. This is the selfish love. It falls short. You can't really add on there as you hate yourself. It all kind of unwinds. This is bad Bible study. This is, leads to bad theology. Whenever you place man at the center instead of God. They were assuming that God was concerned about them and only them. Of course, we're the Israelites. We're the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Of course that he loves us and we should love each other and everybody else he must hate. Leviticus 19.2, where would they get, come up with this? Well, if they read this verse, speak, the Lord to Moses, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, here's my message for them. 
So what they did is they just zeroed it in. Oh, this is for us. The Lord is our God, and he wants us to love one another. But that's just looking at a verse and then twisting it. Bad Bible study leads to bad theology when it relies more on rationale and reason than what does the Bible actually say. So be careful of this. If you hold a near and dear belief, well, I think this, well, I think that, and I'm going to find a verse in the Bible that just supports, but don't challenge me, don't question me. Listen, a lot of books are sold and a lot of programs on TV and a lot of YouTube followers follow people that do that. Taking the Bible out of context, relying on rationale and reason. Here's what they were doing. Using reason, using rationale. Then they were saying, well, if the Lord commanded us to love our neighbor, then what's on the other side of neighbor is enemy. So if love, then the opposite of love is hate. Well, voila, there we go. Love neighbor, hate enemy, and buy our next book, and be sure to stop by the local synagogue and temple, and we'll have more of this for you. They were arguing from silence. They were arguing from inference. Okay, another example of this, baptizing babies because the whole household came to faith in Christ in Philippi when Paul and Silas were in the jail. They came in the whole household, so therefore there must be babies there. But the Bible doesn't say that. And you build a whole doctrine out of inference or from silence. That's what they're doing. Proverbs 25, they had to ignore this Old Testament text. If your enemy is hungry, ha, ha, ha. Oh, it doesn't say that. It says, give him what? Bread to eat. Hmm, that doesn't sound like hatred. If he's thirsty, would you like some water? For you will heat burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. The Lord cares about them. Paul would quote that in Romans 12 and verse 20. So they knew this, but they just looked over because it messed with what they were on about. This is taking Scripture out of context. Having to ignore other Scriptures that teach clearly, but I want this to be true, so ignore clear teaching in Scripture to just hold on to bad teaching. Now, there's two areas of the Old Testament that would, would have led or could have pointed them in this direction, and then away they went, off to the races. There's two areas. Number one is the conquest of Canaan, okay? So if we're asking the question, where in the world would they ever come up with this idea that we should hate our enemy? What we're not saying is those religious scribes and Pharisees were ignorant, they were dumb, they weren't learned enough, and they, they needed schooling. No, no. They were basing it off of, go back to the conquest of Canaan. When the children of Israel went into Canaan under Joshua, they were commanded, you have to put this enemy out. If you become like this enemy, then I will bring judgment upon you. Genesis 15 and verse 16, the Lord told Abraham, this is what is coming, and they shall come back here, talking about his descendants in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now think about this. The Lord is patient with them. He tells Abraham, you're not going to live in this land, but your descendants will, and when they come back, I'm being patient for hundreds of years. So the Lord was patient. He was merciful with Cain, first family, murderer. Uh, he was patient when he sent Noah, and Noah preached for 120 years, repentance, 
and only his family bore to dark. He was patient when Abraham looked over and got the message that God was going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did Abraham say? Ah, ha, ha, serves them right. No, he did not. Lord, how about 50? How about 45, 40, 40, on down? 10. If I can find 10 righteous people in these cities, will you spare these two cities? And the Lord said, yes, I will. And Abraham was heartbroken when Lot, Lot's wife, two daughters. If he would have come down to five, there wasn't five people to be delivered out of that city. And the Lord said, I'll give you 10 and I'll spare the judgment because you've interceded for them. I see nothing in there of hating enemies. We see everything about the righteousness of God. Listen to what Spurgeon says. He says, it is a well-known truth that God has great long-suffering but that there is a point beyond which even his long-suffering will not go. So if you're listening today and you keep hearing the message of salvation, but you're thinking later, maybe next year, maybe when I'm this point in life, maybe later I will surrender to God, don't forget these words. The Lord is not weak in that he is not dealing with you. The Lord is merciful and patient. And I've experienced his mercy and his patience. That's one area. They thought, well, maybe, maybe because of the Canaanite conquest, then we're supposed to still be mad at everybody. That was a specific time, a specific period in Israel's history. There were also the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms. We've read through a couple of times the entire book of Psalms here in this place. And there are some Psalms when you get to them and you hear what the psalmist is praying And it's like, wow, did I just hear that right? Maybe they read the wrong book. What was happening there in these imprecatory prayers? This is a prayer calling down judgment. A prayer, these are not of the psalmist saying, vindicate me, but these are prayers of the psalmist crying out on behalf of God's people, God's glory, God's honor. We just sang this morning that you come back with the head of my enemy. And what did I do? I just praised. What do I need to do? Not take out vengeance on people. I need to worship you and let you be God. And remember, you've been merciful to me. But the psalmists are motivated by the glory of God is falling into the dust. God, restore your glory. And most vividly, the psalms are fulfilled in Jesus. So are we more upset at our honor being dishonored or Jesus' glory, Jesus being dishonored? Listen to what the Psalms say. that They would have had to have both of these in the Psalms. Psalm 47, 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. All peoples, all people groups. Psalm 67, 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Selah, stop the music and think about that. That God's heart is for all peoples, all nations. Is that our heart? Is that your heart? Do you have this kind of love? There's a love that is selfish and deficient. And secondly, Jesus 
shows to us that there is a sacrificial love that is divine. There's a sacrificial love. It's God's love. This is not relationships being driven hell up. This is heaven down. This is from heaven. This is divine love. This is Jesus Christ, God incarnate. Beloved, the love of Jesus Christ is radical. This is a higher law. This is a higher standard. This is the love that what we talked about last week when somebody was carrying a a backpack of a Roman soldier and they got to the end of that mile one and that Christian, the follower of Christ, would keep walking and the soldier would say, why are you carrying on? Did you miss the marker? I saw your marker there. Why are you walking on? Because I'm a follower of Jesus. And this love is divine. That would have created so many opportunities for witness. That's what it looked like to love your enemies. And Jesus says in verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. Here we find the core of Christian character. Because this is where we find the heart of God's character, that he loved us while we were yet sinners. This is what the Apostle Paul was overwhelmed with. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak and at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There wasn't anything good in us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Every now and then we hear about someone taking in in the line of duty. They lay down their life. They protect others. Not often, but every now and then you hear of this. But what did God do? This radical love of Christ, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still crucify him. Crucify him. Sinners. Christ died for us. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. As Paul writes this this monumental chapter to the Ephesian believers. He is just still overwhelmed at the saving grace of Jesus. He tells about where we came from, who we were, and how our lives were changed. Ephesians 2 verse 1 And he's writing to these believers to remind them, don't forget where you've come from. And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Okay, put that on your resume, right? What value do you bring? I'm just dead in trespasses and sins. Next. Okay, that's not an attractive first foot forward. Verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. That's, That's where everybody is following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. Hang on a second. This was Saul of Tarsus. He was a rising star in Judaism. He was religious. He was of this tribe and all of these things that he had. And he's saying, you know who I was? I was a child of wrath. Like the rest of mankind, I wasn't better than anybody, verse 4, but God. 
but God, amen? Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, listen, if you belong to Christ, yes, you will suffer persecution and you will go through trial here, but listen to what lies ahead. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. How do we know? Where was this displayed? In Jesus. It's a down payment. He's already showed it to us. It's in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may, may boast, for we are his masterpiece. Workmanship. He's creating us in Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in those good works, walk in them. What are these good works? Love your enemies. Pray for those who are persecuting you. This is radically different. John Stott, he says it this way. He says, the truth is that evil men should be the object simultaneously of our love and of our hatred. As they are simultaneously the object, objects of God's, his love, his hatred. To love them is ardently to desire that they will repent and believe and so be saved. To hate them is to desire with equal ardor that if they stubbornly refuse to repent and believe, they will incur God's judgment. Why? Because we love God and we love Jesus. And if somebody dismisses Jesus, disbelieves Jesus, will not worship Jesus, that we have a problem with that. It's not fitting, it's not right, it's dishonorable, it's blasphemous. So love your enemies, Jesus says. Pray for those who persecute you. This is radical love. So can I ask you the question this morning? Who are you at odds with? Who is it that you just, I'm not talking to them anymore. I'm, I'm just, you know what? You crossed this line. You offended me. You, you did this to me. You did that to me. And, and that's it. I'm done with you. And we can all be tempted in this way. Even if you're a Christian, you're still walking around in the tent that you were born with. When the moment you get saved, you're not immediately delivered from all the temptations and struggles that you had before you came to faith in Christ. But the Spirit of God lives in you. And this is a difficult message. This is a challenging message. But it takes us back to the basics of this is the love of God. Do I know this love? Is there anyone that you have cut off? Did you refuse to forgive? Pray for them. Pray for them. This does not dismiss. This does not deny the wrong that was done to you. This is not sweeping it under the rug. This is taking whatever matter, whatever concern that you are bearing and taking it to God who sees all, knows all, and reigns over all. And you're surrendering that case into his court. 
And at the same time as we're praying these words, we're reminded of God's love and grace and forgiveness. And we're, it's like washed again in our minds and in our hearts of the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts. And we long for that to happen to our enemies. That they would know God in this way. Well, where do we see this illustrated? What did Jesus pray on the cross? Father, forgive them. Forgive them for they do not know what they do. Remember we said last week and Jesus taught right here in this chapter, somebody sues you for your, your shirt, give them your overcoat. Wow, that's, I'm not doing, that's my stuff. Who's saying this prayer? It's Jesus of Nazareth hanging on a cross with not one stitch of clothing on between heaven and earth, bearing the wrath of God for sinners. And the sinners pouring out their wrath on him, thinking he deserves it. And one thief beside him says, he's the only one that doesn't deserve this. Can't you see this? We're about to stand before God. Have you no fear? What does the other thief say? Give me my life back and we'll talk terms. He didn't know who he was talking to. We don't make deals with God, beloved. The deal that God made was in Christ, he was crushed for us so that we can go free. In Acts chapter seven, we see the account at the, at the hand of Saul of Tarsus of the first martyr in the church. His name was Stephen. In Acts 7 and verse 54, now, he, he preached this amazing message. Maybe it's something that goes with Stephen. Amazing messages, I'm not sure, but he preached a message. You can read it. Acts 7. And he walked them through this. Old, Peter did the same thing. On the day of Pentecost, he walked them through the Old Testament showing this is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You need Jesus. Believe in Jesus. He's Messiah. You need to repent and trust in Jesus. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. This is a whole different level of anger. This is mob anger, unrestrained. I hate your message. This is hell up. This is demonic, knows nothing of forgiveness, knows nothing of kindness, knows nothing of mercy. You've crossed me and, and, and they're angry. But he, you love that? Remember we just read, but God? Now you, you see the crowd and they're just, oh, they're so mad and they're angry and they just can't stand his message. They can't get to him fast enough. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. Wouldn't you love to have a snapshot of that Instagram? Them, him. Their faces filled with anger. Stephen's face, what in the world was his face showing? Looking into heaven. And what does he see? Saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, this isn't fair. This isn't right. All I tried to do was be a good deacon in the church and serve, and this is what the Lord pays me back. Give me my baptism back. No. No. Lord Jesus, I'm an offering. Receive my spirit. Do you, you hear he's not even demanding anything? I'm suffering and you better. Lord Jesus, receive. I'm just giving my life. I'm laying my life down. If you're going to forgive anybody, that is what has to happen. Somebody's life has to be laid down. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Lord. Do not hold this sin against them. Do you hear that? What are they doing? Sinning. They're committing murder. He's not saying it's no big deal. They're sinning. God gives life. They're taking, and they didn't have a trial. He wasn't condemned. He wasn't breaking the law. He was preaching Christ who fulfilled the law. They hated Jesus. They hated his message. And now they hate Stephen and they're ready for him to die. And his, his dying words, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his, execu of his execution. He was sitting right there. He prays, do not hold this against them. And he's like a, like a blanket just falls to the ground. He's asleep. All of their wrath, vengeance, anger, and he's not even there. Jesus, come on, Stephen. Welcome home. I got you. Fall right here. Hey, if you want to fall anywhere, don't fall on your own rights. Don't fall on defending your name. Don't fall on, that's not fair to me. Fall on Jesus. He's the one sufficient to bear up the weight of your soul and your questions and not dismiss and not deny anything that we're going through, but to say, give it to me. Do you know what I went through for you? I've got nothing better. I have no stronger love than what I laid down on that cross for you. He's freely given it to us in Christ, Romans 8 tells us. John Stott says it this way. He says, so there is such a thing as perfect hatred, just as there is such a thing as righteous anger but it is a hatred for God's enemies, not our own enemies. Ouch. It is entirely free of all spite, rancor, and vindictiveness, and is fired only by love for God's honor and glory. That's when we get angry. Or shall I say, that's when we should get angry. Does that, does that define our arguments this past week? That's when you really, you know, got that word out to the family member, husband, spouse, coworkers. No, it's usually over the silly, petty stuff that will not matter at all, but it was my honor. It was my whatever. And that's when we, Get the person by the neck you owe me. 
maybe not physically grab them, but in how we treat them. It's not like this. The love of Jesus is radical. The Father's love is universal. This is a sacrificial love that is divine. The Father's love is universal. Now, this is not the same thing as universalism, and we'll talk about this. Jesus says in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. What's Jesus teaching here? Well, children share the likeness of their father. Just point blank. You see someone, you're like, hey, I, I think I know your dad. How do you know my dad? I'm looking at you. And I went to school with your dad. And you look like him. Children share the likeness of their father. Like father, like son. Just how it goes. This love of the Father in heaven, it transforms the children of God. Sinclair Ferguson, he says it this way. He says, God's people should be different. It should be obvious that we are extraordinary, for our Father is extraordinary. Why wouldn't we be different? Why wouldn't we stand out? Do you know who our Father in heaven is? Do you know how gracious he is in giving Christ? So Jesus says, so that you may be. So you we're, gonna, <clears throat> we're gonna love and pray for our enemy. Why? So that you may be sons of your father who is in. Now wait, is Jesus here then saying that we have to earn that status as son? No, that's not what he's saying. John Calvin says it in a way I think that's helpful and helps us understand. He says, whoever shall wish to be accounted as a Christian, you wanna be known as a Christian? You want people to know that you're a Christian? Let him love his enemies. There you go. Love your enemies. And people will say, hmm, something's different about them. You know what I think? I think they must be a Christian. That doesn't make you a Christian. It just makes you Christian in behavior when you forgive and when I forgive. 1 John 3, the apostle of love, John, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us? that we should be called children of God. And so we are, done, adopted. We belong to the Lord. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So then, if he's going to do all the heavy lifting and all the work, then I, I'm, I prayed, I belong to Christ. Can I just coast on into heaven? No, that's not what this love does. This love changes us. Verse 3 says, anyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I've been declared holy when I turned from my sin, trusted in Christ, declared righteous. His spirit moves in me, and now what am I pursuing? Holiness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They'll be filled. Wait a second. Aren't you filled with God's righteousness? And I'm being filled. So you have salvation, justification, 
sanctification, and one day the job will be finished. Glorification will be made just like Christ. And we lean into that. We long for that. We're active in pressing into that, knowing he is the one who will finish everything that he has begun in us. So then what is Jesus saying here? The Father shares his resources with everyone. The good people, however you define good, all right, what commonly, like, yeah, that's a nice neighbor. They're a good person. They're not perfect. But then there's evil people. Jesus is not here teaching universalism, that is salvation for everybody, independent of, apart from their repentance and faith in Jesus. He's not teaching that. That is clearly not what the rest of Scripture teaches. John 3, 3, Jesus told the religious uh, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That was a religious man, teacher of Israel. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him, remains on him. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, answering Thomas's question, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except, what's the access? It's through Jesus. There's only one way. And people say, well, what about people who've never heard? What happens to them? Look in the mirror if you belong to Christ. You are what happens to them. I am. That's why we were given the Great Commission to go tell them about Jesus. The Great Commission is pointless. It's it's backwards and upside down. If that belief, and people believe that, if they've never heard, then they're not guilty, and then somehow they'll be okay. That's not scriptural. If that were the case, then why would I ever tell anybody about Jesus? Why would you tell anybody about Jesus if, oh, now you're you're culpable, now you you know the message? We would just be silent. If ignorance was access to heaven, it's not. You have to hear the gospel. You have to respond to the gospel in faith, repentance in faith. Acts 4.12, Peter preaches this, and he says, and there is salvation in no one else. And we sing the song, there's no other name. Under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the name. So we preach the name. We live in this name. We who belong to Christ, we bear this name. The question is, do we reflect this name, the glory of this name? When you love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you, that is in fact what is happening. What Jesus was teaching here is providence. The divine provision for everyone Wherever they are on planet earth, this is what is known as common grace. That God is good to all men. He is far better to all of us than we deserve. James 1.17, the half-brother of Jesus says, every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The one who spoke the sun into existence and planted it, fixed it there, that's who Jesus is talking about, that his sun rises on the evil and the good. Anybody have that in your portfolio today? Yeah, when I die, I want you to go ahead and leave my son, the sun. That's mine. 
Now, I don't know what's going on when people say you can buy your own star. How are they ever going to check that? You're like, I'm going to stop by and visit that star and make sure that they actually gave me the one I paid for. These belong to the Lord. His son rises on, Jesus says, the evil and the good. That things go well for those who are evil and for those who are good. So things that go terrible for us, if it goes wrong, it doesn't mean that we're under the judgment of God. If you ever are tempted to think that, if things are going bad, then God must be judging me, then you'd have to go back and remember Paul. They ended up chopping his head off. You have to remember Jesus. He hung naked on the cross, crucified for sinners. What went wrong? What did they do wrong? They suffered. Stephen, stoned by by the, the religious people. What did he do wrong? He didn't do anything wrong. He was a sinner. Paul was a sinner. Jesus was sinless. And in his rising, Stephen, Paul, and every other person who's died trusting in the Lord Jesus, they walk out of that grave right in to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. So he's saying his son rises on the evil and the good. His rain descends on the just and the unjust. So North Korea gets rain and South Korea gets rain. In China, the communists get rain. The Christians get rain. The Uyghur Muslims that no one's really talking about and the Holocaust that's going on with them right now inside of that communist regime that no one wants to challenge because they make money, a lot of money out of these relationships and partnerships with Chinese industry. God cares about them. And they get his son and they get his rain This is a universal, he is good to all men everywhere, but that's not the same thing as universalism. That suffering will result in salvation, no. God will judge all people and all peoples righteously. So we heed the advice of scripture and we urge everyone to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as Hebrews 9.27 says, there is a day appointed for a man to die once and after that comes the judgment. When is that day? I don't know when that is for you and I don't know when that is for me, but I am standing here before you in the love and grace of Christ saying, please be ready for that day. Don't let that day take you by surprise. And we remind everyone that as Christians, we are not perfect. We're forgiven. And Paul would write, That beautiful verse, quoting the Old Testament, Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're doing the same thing Noah was doing. As he was building that ark, and it just went up, there's an ark trip, you know, this this summer. And you stand by the side of that, and you think, that's a long message. I thought Wise preached a long time. 120-year message with a visual aid going up a boat, you're going to have to get laughed at and you're going to have to die to you and get in God's salvation. Take him up on his offer and they all laughed him to scorn. And Noah and seven others got on that provision of God of salvation and the rest of humanity was washed away in God's judgment and they were warned. And they never called on the name of the Lord for salvation. There's a selfish love and there's a, 
as sacrificial love. One is deficient, one is divine. Thirdly, there's a supernatural difference between the two. We see this in verses 46 and 47. And the question for us is, which kind of love defines us? Do people know us, the closest to us, do they know us as being a selfless person, a sacrificial person? Or are we selfish? Christian love, beloved, is not self-serving. It's not self-serving. Next time we sing the song, we are here for you. We are here for you. That's a Christian message. I am not here for me. We're here for you, Lord. And then he says, okay, really? Then take care of the people around you. Serve them and serve them well. And Jesus says in verse 46, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? This is a rational love. This is just reasonable. You love me? All right, we're good? We're good? I love you too. All right, I love you. No, I love you. It's easy when people love you and speak well of you. It's not challenging at all to love that person. Tax collectors like Matthew, when Jesus showed up at his station, everybody hated him except all of his buddy tax collectors. The Jews hated him. The Romans, they didn't really like him, but he does a job we don't want to do. All these layers in tax collecting where they just scammed money off of people left and right. But when Matthew came to faith in Christ, what did he do? He threw a party and he called all of his friends. That guy had friends. Come to my house. I'm fixing a meal. I'm there. And Jesus will be here. Okay. You said meal, right? Yeah. They came. They showed up. That's just rational. That's just normal. Radical love is when you love your enemies. This requires a different kind of love from a heavenly source. This is merciful. This is like the good Samaritan when he saw the person in need that the two religious people walked by and didn't help, and he showed him mercy. But you remember the rich young ruler that was asking the question, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus told him the account, and then Jesus flipped that question around and said, now let me ask you a question. Who was neighbor to the man? And that man did not want to say, because he hated those people, he didn't want to say, the Samaritan, so he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus revealed that bitter racism that was in his heart. How can we better love and serve one another. Love your enemies. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 5, it's the love of Christ that controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's a whole new way of living. Why would you do this? Because he died for me and he rose again. He's alive and I'm gonna see him again. And he loves me and I love him. Christian love is not self-centered. Not only is it not self-serving, uh, let's see, maybe I'll join this church. What are y'all gonna do for me? Yeah, I'll, how are you gonna serve me? I'll try that other church down there. No, no. Christianity is not self-serving and it's not self-centered. It's all about me, right? No, 
It's all about him. And Jesus says in verse 47, if you greet only your brothers, brother, 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 what more are you doing than all the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Non-believers have handshakes. All right, all right, that's, that's our handshake, you know, the high five, all this stuff. That, that's nothing special there. It doesn't look glorious. It's just maybe a little different. Rational love, you just greet your people, your family, your kin. Now listen to me. If your family, your kin, your friends are more important to you than Jesus and his church, there's a problem. You might have a love that is deficient. The despised Gentiles knew how to treat their relatives well. But if you're a Christian, you're called to treat your enemy well. And so am I. And this is humanly impossible. This isn't even humanly desirable. That's a, I mean, he had me up to there. But, man, just, you know, make an airplane out of this. Let's do something different. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm done. Rational love, brother, brother. Radical love, stones, throwing. Stephen, Father, forgive them. Lord, don't lay it at their charge. And Saul of Tarsus is holding the coat saying, are you kidding me? How is he praying that? I wouldn't be praying that. I would be religiously cursing. Something different about him, and I always knew there was something different about him, and now he's proving it in his dying moment. If you're saying right now, I can't do this. Welcome to the club. None of us can on our own. This is where you need resurrection life. You need the spirit of God in you. The account of Corey Ten Boom the book is The Hiding Place. There's a movie. It's on Amazon Prime right now. You can see it for free. It may be always on there, but it's, it's just on there if you're a Prime member. It's a movie that tells the story of what happened in Holland. September of 1944, the Gestapo showed up at the Ten Boom household. Her father was a watchmaker, a clockmaker. That picture is of her room. The cutout is The Hiding Place. The little access point in that cupboard there is the way that they put Jews, Dutch Jews who were trying to flee and they would bring, and they would take anybody that came to their house and they would hide them. And actually when the Gestapo showed up that night, there were Jews that were in that hiding place. And they survived, they lived. The entire family except Corey all died at the hands of the Nazis to make a difference. In 1947, after she had been released, I think she was released in December of 1944, she was speaking in Munich, Germany. She was at a church. And this is the account of what happened at the close of the service. A, a balding man in, gray, in a gray overcoat stepped forward to greet her. Corey froze. She knew this man well. He had been one of the most vicious guards at Ravensbrück, one who had mocked the women prisoners as they showered, 
She said it came back with a rush, like the, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. And now he was pushing his hand out to shake her, saying, a fine message, Fraulein, how good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take the hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him, she said, and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things. I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. And again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? I love her honesty here. She says, I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. She talks about her sister Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? The soldier stood there expectantly, waiting for Corey to shake his hand. She wrestled. But the most difficult thing she ever had to do, she says, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. Standing there before the former SS man, Corey remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will, not an emotion. So she prayed. Jesus, help me. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. Corey thrust out her hand. And as she did, an incredible thing took place. The current started, she said, in my shoulder. It raced down my arm, springing into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. And she said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, just picture this. We grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner. And this is what she says, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried, and I did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. That's one little half sheet of impossibility because we're talking about the divine love of God, 
done for you and for me so that Paul would say, the only way this is possible is to be crucified with Christ. So it's not me living, it's Christ living in me. Is he living in you? Followers of Christ, listen to me, we're not meant to blend in. There's nothing glorious about blending in. Stand out, how are we gonna stand out? Have you received the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, today, receive his forgiveness, his mercy today. Is there someone that you are withholding forgiveness from? Begin the process of extending forgiveness to them. It's not the same as trust. If someone has hurt you, it's not a, it doesn't matter. No, there's, there's a process. You may need wisdom and counseling and help in this. But begin the process of forgiving. What is your next step to move away from living selfishly to loving sacrificially? Take the step right now, today. Let's stand together. Father, I thank you for the, the love that you have displayed perfectly in Christ. Father, forgive me. Forgive us. We're so easily upset and put out by little things. Father, let us see what you are doing through every situation. Help us to love our enemies. Help us to pray for those who persecute us. And we will always look to Christ. Help us to love one another well in the church. To give and receive forgiveness freely so that for anyone who would come in this place, they would be impressed not by us, but by our Savior, the one who has loved us with his life. And we simply say this morning, thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.